Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Book of Sports podcast where two Christian sport nuffies think about the relationship between faith and sport. With me, as always, is Nathan Oldman Brewer. <laughs> Good to be here. I'm feeling, I'm feeling that little bit older after the birthday last week. So, um, yep, almost 30. So... That's right. It's it's a comforting thought, Nathan, to know that your best years are behind you and yes. it's all downhill from here. <laughs> My name's Tim Schooler, of course. Today we're thinking about being old and the some of the veterans who we really love seeing uh, play sport, defy, defy the odds. Uh, we're going to get to that in a moment. But considering we are in the veteran category now, we're both uh, mm-hmm. into our fourth decade. Um, wait, you're 29, aren't you? 29. You're 29. Almost. You're nearly at your fourth decade. Yes, yes. Yeah. Almost. So close. So close. Um, I'm into my fourth decade, but and you're not far away. But we're, we're in the veteran category, and uh, so I thought it'd be good to give us uh, give our uh, listeners an update on our sporting pursuits, mm-hmm. uh, something we said we were going to do at the beginning of the season. So, Nathan, where are you up to with uh, with, with running in things? Obviously, you're, you're now a father. You're now a 29-year-old man. The body's breaking down. How, how are things? Yep. Um, I'm hoping... I'm hoping for a little bit of redemption with my running uh, and with um, and with dealing with my dad bod. So Kirsten has got us onto a, an eating an eating and exercise uh, program where we type up goals for for each week and keep each other accountable. So um, now, so okay, so just to clarify here, some yeah. some of our listeners will will hear that and sniff from a mile out. This is a, a plan that Kirsten has for you, and mm. she said, okay, well. I'll frame it as something that we both need to do, but really you're the object and you'll you'll be the one who is the target of this. Is is that the case? Yeah, I think so. I think so. She she is pretty modest, so she'd say she needs it too, but um, she's recovering pretty well, I think, uh, from having a baby and getting back in a pretty good shape quicker than I am, which is sort of an indictment on me because I didn't go through uh, the the, late, the trauma of labour. But um, anyway, yes. So I'm I've been put on I've been put on a program. Yes, which we're you know in air brackets doing together. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a couple of weeks ago, I registered for a race at the end of August called the Husky Husky Half Marathon. And so my motivation to train has increased, I'd say about 20, 30% since registering for the race sort of, I feel like I'm obligated to get out there now and I've got something to work towards. So yes, I've been trending downwards all year, but I'm hoping that uh, this this new program and registering for a race will, um, will be the turning point and the rest of the winter months, I'll be training hard and dropping weight and, and peaking at the right time, but we'll, and- we'll see. And how's the body feeling as you get back into things? Is it uh, is it sort of feeling like a bit of stiff machine? You need a bit of WD forty on the joints to get you going. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit like that. A couple, I've, there's been a couple of times where I've planned to go out, get up and punch out an hour run early in the morning, and I wake up and I go, nah, my body's too stiff. I'm waiting till the afternoon. I can't go, can't go right now. I'll go and start work early and finish work a bit early because um, yeah, my body can't go for a six a.m. run right now. It just wakes up way too stiff, too sore. Needs some, needs some, uh, needs the day and a bit of food and a bit of liquid to sort of, yeah, limber up and get ready to go, which is a bit of a sad reality. Didn't feel that long ago that I could just roll out of bed at whatever time in the morning and just run out the door, but those days are behind me as well. And not just that, right? When you were younger, because I can relate to this, my, my body is feeling, I feel like an 80 year old man at times, <laughs> but the, not only when you were younger could you do those things, but anyone who said they couldn't, you're like, well, you're just being a bit soft. Yes. If you're as hard as me, then you could do these things. You get, you get to my, you get to our age. Goodness, how on earth do people do these things? Um, so my, 
Um, COVID has come at a good time for Sydney for us to be back in lockdown because it's meant I've had a couple of weeks break um, <laughs> in the middle of my AFL season because, so to give you a bit of an update, I had a groin strain a few weeks ago. I had to pull out of a game in the warm-up. First time I've had to do that in my life. And then in the week that followed as my groin healed, my left calf was um, was really, really tight for some reason and my right knee was really sore. I went to the physio and she said, well, basically it's because you're out of shape and you're, you're pretty flexible but there's, you don't have right, you know, your body's just sort of trying to do whatever it can to keep going and so here's a list of things you need to do. And I thought, oh, goodness. And I couldn't even do my exercises without my knee hurting so I had to go back to my physio and say, hey, this isn't working. I need a, a modified, you know, like... Um, special disability sort of um, plan. So I think I think the story is Brewer that it's it's well and truly my final season of AFL, and oh, um, all my attention goes to golf. Yeah, good. but the good news, the good news is that I've reached my lowest golf handicap. Ooh, good. What is it? It's 20- still it's still twenty eight point six. Nice. <laughs> That's the lowest it's been. I had thirty six points on Saturday. Came Thanks, second man. in a comp, so that was a that was a good feeling. What price did you get for second? You normally get a price for top three, don't you? Well, because COVID, we weren't allowed to stick around. So I, I presume there's a fifty dollar voucher um, on offer, but yeah. I they don't. Yeah, normally it gets announced in the in the clubhouse afterwards. So I have to I have to make some inquiries and work out. And you and you get a ball as well, you know, because yes. you because you, you, considering you lose three balls in a round of golf, it's good to get at least one back. Um, so. That's where I'm at. I'm feeling pretty good golf, golf at the moment, but uh, that will change with my next round. Now, we're, cha- we're talking about veterans. Anytime people start playing golf, you know they're in the veteran category yes. of things. Uh, we're talking about veterans because there's been a couple of significant, uh, well, one in particular, very significant milestone uh, in the world of AFL in the last mm. week, and there's one not very far away. So last week, Sean Burgoyne uh, formerly played for Port Adelaide, has played the bulk of his career, with uh, Hawthorne. He's been a premiership player at multiple clubs. He played his 400th game of AFL football. 400 games. Now, my body feels broken. I've played, (laughs) I reckon, about 200 games between under-18s and and seniors. How on earth do you go about playing 400 games at the top level? He's 38. He'll be 39 in October this year. And just amazing. So at one level, you've got Sean Burgoyne down, down at Hawthorne. He's played his 400th game of the AFL. You've got uh, Lance Franklin playing for the Swans, who is uh, he's, uh, not quite as old. He'll be um, 35 in January next year. But he has played, uh, again, not quite as many games, but he's got a, a career total of 311 games. But the thing for Buddy is he has kicked in his career, 976 goals. He's just 24 goals away from being the fourth player, I think it is, to kick 1,000 goals in a career, which is mighty, mighty impressive. And he's still probably got um, a couple of seasons ahead of him. Yeah, sure is. That's impressive. It's impressive. I mean, AFL, 400 games at AFL, that is so brutal. That is One game is brutal, but 400... And the recovery and then the work you have to do just to stay in shape to be able to do it. Like that is just the amount of hours he would have put into his body would just be ludicrous. But um, yeah, how many seasons is 400 games across? Is that 2021? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, let me pull that up for you. So Lance, well, Lance Franklin, to, to start the conversation there, uh, mm-hmm. I was actually at Lance Franklin's 
um, debut game, round one, 2005, Hawthorne versus Sydney at the SCG. And he... Uh, he'd just been recently drafted along with Jared Ruffhead and they both started in the in the goal square uh, up the end where I was sitting. I was actually umpiring the halftime Auskick game um, oh, yes. that day. And, uh, yeah, that was Lance Franklin's debut. And, um, yeah, so that was 2005. Sean Burgoyne debuted in 2001. Yeah. Okay. So he's in his, what, his 21st season of, uh, of AFL football at the moment. That means um, you're sorry, sorry. injured too. He sorry, he didn't debut in two thousand and one. He debuted in two thousand and two, but he's on the list for the first time in two thousand and two. Yeah, okay. you have to be so durable to do that. Like he's averaging twenty games a year. That means he's staying very healthy. There's only one season in that list where he's played less than ten games, and the vast majority he's played more than twenty. <sighs> That's good. That's impressive. That's very impressive. Brutal. Yeah, mighty amazing player, and he's uh, yeah. Four premierships in that time, so very impressive to Sean Burgoyne. Um, so this brings us into the the idea of the veteran and the, the the people who we look at and we go, just a superhuman effort. You have you have reached the pinnacle of your sport. You have achieved things that no one can rightly set out to expect. Probably people dream of, but they dream of it because there are these there are a very small handful of people who have done that. A very small number of people who played 400 games, very small number of people who have um, you know, kicked a 1,000 goals and just mighty, mighty impressive. So um, you've been doing some digging for us, Nathan, for our obscure stats this week about some, some mm-hmm. old man achievements. <laughs> Bring us into obscure start of the week. Yes. Well, we've had one, we've had one this year uh, in your preferred sport or one of your preferred sports in golf. Are you, you across that one? Phil Mickelson. Yes, Phil Mickelson, 50. Unreal. Reaching the pinnacle of his sport, uh, winning a major, you know, very famous for coming second a lot, big old Phil, but uh, at 50. uh, Always good to see a left-hander get a win. Yes, that's true. And and at his age, very impressive. Now, I've come across this guy. uh, He's a shooter, uh, and his name is Oscar Swan. He's Swedish, and he won an Olympic gold as a 64-year-old. What? Shooting, yes. So... (laughs) So I mean, I, know, I mean, I know shooting doesn't require that much movement, but I still feel like it requires skill and reflex, and um, definitely reflex, yeah, yeah. And so sixty-four, and apparently that was in 1912, and in 1920 he won the silver medal as a 72-year-old. So um, there is a that. conversation piece. There is a conversation piece about how um, how significant Olympic medals were a hundred years ago. Oof. That's rough. Yeah, is this a, I don't know how controversial a call this is, but you feel like things that happen today, you, yeah. you're probably getting the best in the world. You've got people who are well trained yeah. to these things. Yeah, I'm, I might be thoroughly uneducated about Olympics from 100 <laughs> years ago, but I feel like there are a few people who, you know, they probably just pulled him off a Swedish farm somewhere. You know, he was mainly responsible for shooting ducks, and mm. they've said, oh, you know. You can play for the Swedish Olympic team, and bang, there he is, whips a gold because there were only three other competitors and. You know, yeah. one of them was blind. You know, I think Yeah. I think there's a caveat over that obscure state of the week if I'm gonna be completely honest, Nathan. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well we can't we can't put a caveat on Phil's, but um yeah, I'm always a bit hesitant in just in that, you know, I don't want people in twenty one twenty one, you know, putting putting a, a caveat on our own athletes when they look back at twenty twenty because there'll be a whole set of advancements a hundred years from now as well and yeah. So I just I'm always hesitant to put caveats on them when 
you know, I don't want the future generations doing that to us, but we'll see. Maybe the gap won't be as big, you know, in a hundred years from now than it was between 1920 and, and 2020. We'll see. We'll see. But I am hesitant on putting putting asterisks uh, on uh, other people's performances. Well, I'm pretty happy to drag other people down. I mean, that's <laughs> that, I think uh, 30 years of being involved in sport has shown me that's yeah. not just an, an acceptable but a required thing to do. You've got to <laughs> drag other people down, tarnish their reputations, and that way you can feel that little bit better about yourself. Yeah, um, yes. But that's not what Sean Burgoyne and Lance Franklin have had to do, or Phil Mickelson, or maybe even old mate Swan from Sweden. Uh, yeah. They've... They've got to the top by their own um, efforts, uh, notwithstanding the questionable ability of their opponents in the case of a, uh, an Olympian from 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's a couple uh, I want to quit. There's Robert Parrish, who won an NBA title as a four, uh, days before his 44th birthday. So it's impressive that he's still in the league, but he won it as part of the Jordan Bulls. So I'm sort of like, well... You were getting carried a bit there. Like you can't. I don't know how much credit to give a forty-four-year-old. Yeah, know? he was just one of the guys that they could afford to put on the roster still because all the money was going to MJ. Yeah, exactly. So he 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 did it, and kudos to him. But um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna caveat that a bit. Um, got um, I think a, so. We got Serena Williams, classic, um, yeah. thirty-five-year-old women's winner, um, Grand Slam, oldest woman. Uh, to do it, but uh, she's 39 now, so she can do it again. She'll uh, make it a pretty hard record to beat. And Roger is she, Federer. Also- is she any is she any chance of getting past Margaret Court's record? Do you think? Goodness me, I, what's the gap at the moment? I thought. I think asked- does she need, does she need to win one more to equal her yeah. Grand Slams? She's just one, then yeah, surely, sure. She's a chance. You reckon she got yeah. another Grand Slam in her? Yeah, she does. She's wow. just such a superior athlete, even though she's so much older than the rest of the field. She's just. She's a superior athlete. Her at eighty percent of what she used to be is probably as athletic as any other woman in the in the field. So um, I'll back her in. Wow. Um, and yeah, she's just dominant. So and we got Roger going on right now in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, also at thirty nine. So, uh, but the current record is held by Kenny Rosewell. So um, oh, good to have an Aussie up there. Yeah, good to have an Aussie. Thirty seven, big old man in tennis. You know, it's hard to you know lasting much past thirty in tennis is an achievement. So to get into his late thirties. 37 and be the oldest champion uh, is, is impressive going. So, um, yeah. That's, they're good obscure stats. I've actually I've actually got, speaking about tennis, I've got a yeah. quote for you. And yeah. we want to get to the Euro Championships at some point because I made a promise to uh, uh, to one of my mates that we'd get a conversation about the Euros in there. But I've got a, a quote on tennis for you. This is from one of the men who, who was absolutely up the top, mm. maybe not at a time when tennis was at its absolute strengths. It was before the sort of the the Fedra, Djokovic, Nadal threesome. This was a time when Leighton Hewitt could win a Grand Slam. Um, <laughs> but he was with, he was with Pete Sampras, though. So, yeah, he's got a bit of... Yeah, Sampras is a good player. But we're talking about Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi. Now, he said, only boxers can understand the loneliness of tennis players. And we're talking about loneliness because often it seems to me that in the world of sport, some of these guys who do get to the absolute top find it a very lonely experience. Mm. Andre Agassi says, only boxers can understand the loneliness of tennis players, and yet boxers have their corner men and managers. Even a boxer's opponent provides a kind of companionship, someone he can grapple with and grunt at. In tennis, you stand face-to-face with the enemy, trade blows with him, but never touch him or talk to him or anyone else. The rules forbid a tennis player from even talking to his coach while on the court. People sometimes mention the track and field runner as a comparably lonely figure, but I have to laugh. At least the runner can feel and smell his opponents. They're inches away. In tennis, you're on an island. 
of all the games men and women play, tennis is the closest to solitary confinement. Now, Andre there is speaking about the experience of being on court, but it seems to me that off court as well, when you get to the absolute top, it can be a, a lonely experience. People don't know how to relate to you. And when you're obviously inevitably um, just you're very close to your retirement and when retirement comes, it can be uh, a devastating thing for the professional sports person because in one day when you've made your decision, I will retire, you are now defined by someone who you used to be. When you're on TV, the description that goes on your name will be former tennis player or former Australian rules footballer or former, you're defined by who you used to be, which is a scary thing as well. And it seems to me that you reach the top and all these these superhuman veteran sort of efforts that we look up to, they, they're never as thrilling for the person who experiences them as what the fan assumes they must be. Mm. Yeah, it's um, yeah. You work so hard. I mean, we've both dabbled in athletics as well. Like you work so hard and give everything and focus all your energy and effort. And I think I know I know stories of quite a few athletes who hit that pinnacle. And one, one, it's exciting to get there, but then you know people sort of just move on onto the next storyline. Um, once it once it ends, sometimes it's quick and sometimes it takes a long time. To, but you're at the top, and and sometimes you get to the top and it's nowhere near as satisfying as you thought it would be, and you end up sort of a miserable, miserable person because you sort of have gotten to the top. I've won. I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve, and my life feels pretty similar. Um, and so it's a, it is lonely at the top. And then once you're at the top, obviously everyone's hunting you from below you as well uh, in the rankings and. Yeah, when you, if you're playing a team sport, you get the other team's best shot. Every time you play it, it's fatiguing, it's hard, and sometimes not as satisfying as you expect. So it's, it is lonely at the top. And the view from the, from the stands, I think we carry with the assumption, whether it's a, a conscious assumption or not, but we make the assumption that you've got money, you've got fame, you've mm. achieved what you want to achieve. Surely you have to be satisfied and happy. Mm. And therefore... You should, ex- yeah. You should be able to deal with the the social media barrage that you get, or you should be able to deal with the media criticism that you receive. But you should be able to deal with these things because surely you are happy and you're fulfilled. Yes. But for all of us, when we live life, sure, achieving stuff's great. It's good to have you know a bit of financial security, and these things are, are good. Um, it's nice to be sort of thought well of by some people, but they don't bring happiness. You bring you know, the, the contentment and the happiness that you have in life comes from from other areas. Yeah, the question came up for me thinking about why did Michael Jordan feel the need to release The Last Dance last year? Why does a man who achieved everything, six championships, universally recognised as the greatest to do his sport, uh, very few people would debate that that he is the greatest. He's done everything, mate. I think he, he got close to a billion dollars in earnings he has everything why did he feel the need to remind everyone how great he was why is he still sort of a he's a pretty he's known as a pretty prickly uh not the most likable character uh even though he's he's a guy who achieved everything he could possibly want to achieve and i think and to be honest the last dance didn't particularly help that um that persona of me <laughs> He doesn't come across as, as a friendly character throwing his teammates under the bus and doing all sorts of things to Scotty Pippen. And, yeah. Poor Scotty Pippen. Yes, he's come out now. He's gone on his own sort of uh, media rampage this year, I think, in response to being thrown under the bus last year. So 
Yeah, so why is a guy that successful? Like, I, there's, he could not have achieved anything more. And I think partly it's just people move on. Um, so the original reason he wanted to release The Last Dance was because it was back in 2016, actually, LeBron had just won his third championship and all the attention was about him. And, oh, maybe he's better than MJ. And so he felt that people had moved on, they'd forgotten him. Uh, and so there's that big dissatisfaction of, even when you achieve the ultimate height, you are forgotten and you move on. And I mean, I don't know, like even just thinking about it, I can't think of any 1970s prominent athletes, maybe a couple of cricketers, but that's it. Like people just move on. Kenny um, Rosewell. Yeah, Kenny Rosewell. <laughs> yeah, so there's a couple of athletes. But yeah, you hit the pinnacle. You've done everything. You've given your body. You've given your mind. You've, given, you've worked yourself to a standstill and um, you get the sunlight. You get the spotlight for a little bit. And then people find a new shiny toy and they move on and you're forgotten about. Uh, And I think, yeah, I think sometimes people can do it with sport. People can do it with relationships. Like once, once I've done this, everything in my life will be sorted. Once I'm, once I'm married, once I've hit this sports pinnacle, I'll be super satisfied and super happy. And you hit those heights and you're still the same person with the same warts and the same flaws and the same struggles. And, your life hasn't been magically transformed to this fairy tale. You're just, you're just you. And so I think there can be an immense uh, dissatisfaction, uh, even though you're proud of yourself for achieving everything you wanted to achieve. Which leaves something very sad about the, the Michael Jordan experience then, right? You can, you can see that from the outside. You can say you're still, you've achieved so much. You've done everything that you could possibly do, but there's still an emptiness. There's still a mm-hmm. loneliness and there's still this desperate sort of clinging to relevancy. And to cling on to a fame in a hope that that will fulfill and that will will satisfy. And I was thinking about it from the fans' perspective because the fans love the Michael Jordan figure. The fans love being the, the person who can do anything. He mm. is he's Superman. And I think we as humans we we go through this experience. If you're a sport lover, when you're a kid or you're a teenager, everyone who you watch on TV they're all older than you. And they're all people who you aspire to be like them. And you go, I could do that. Or maybe you don't believe you can do that, but you dream about it. And you have the, you know, you're playing in the backyard and you're you're commentating yourself into every great sporting moment. And that's that's the fantasy world that you live in. And that's, that's fun. And that's sort of what you imagine. And then you hit a stage where you're sort of 16, 17, 18, 19, and you go, oh, actually that person's my age or that person's younger than me. And he's, or she is achieving great things on the sporting field and then you get to the probably our age you go with i'm 30 and i look at sean burgoyne who's 38 and i go you are a freak yeah how your body is still able to do all that you put it through absolutely bewilders me but we're always looking for the human who can achieve something great and we're looking for the human who somehow is it's like they're immune from the regular effects of aging on the body or the, mm. the constraints that the human body normally has and they're able to do the things that no one else can do and we we love that in people and we want to believe that that's that's possible and that those people exist and i think that i think that ultimately we it comes out of a heart desire to to meet our maker mm. And the answer for us comes in Jesus stepping into the world as God taking on flesh and 
being human, 100% human, all the limitations that humanity brings with it, but not with the corruption of, of human sinfulness. And he was human and yet he was able to transcend humanity and um, with his divinity, his godness on full display. And I think we, we, and so we worship Jesus, but there is in the human condition, I think, a, a hunger and a, and a longing to see the superhuman at work in all aspects of life. And I think that's part of the reason why we end up putting these celebrities on such a big pedestal, because we assume that once you achieve the superhuman status, then you're, you're superhuman in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. But our sports stars fail drastically in terms mm-hmm. of character, like we all do. Whether it's Dragons players who are having 10 people round to their apartment for a party during lockdown or it's other things, you know, we, we're surprised when sports stars struggle with mental health challenges. And you go, well, they shouldn't do that. Of course they should. They're just like the rest of us. They struggle with all of these things. And we're always going to be let down by the superhumans who we look up to unless that superhuman is Jesus himself. Mm. Yeah, I remember being so disheartened sort of getting older and then looking in sort of going in more detail of some of the sports stars that I loved or some of the sports teams that I loved and and reading more about their personal life rather than just their sporting achievements and you go oh no this is this is horrifying some of the stuff you find out and some of the things they've done in the past and yeah they can be real genuine heroes on the sporting field and and uh pretty awful off it and it's it's a very disheartening uh very disheartening experience but yeah I think uh yeah it's part of humanity to want to to want to be a part of something that lasts, uh, that lasts for a long time, that brings satisfaction, not just now, but ongoingly. And uh, and so we can look for achievement, particularly, you know, sport is a really easy one to look for achievement in. Um, and, and then we'll shift our attention to family and work as we get older and can't pull off the feats that we used to be able to pull off. And yeah, we want to be part of something that lasts, that brings satisfaction forever. And yeah, we want to be part of something, something great. And, and so we, we seek that sort of seek that glory. And it's, I mean, it's sort of one of the big ironies that Jesus came very humbly, very meekly and not seeking, uh, yeah, not seeking fame or acclaim and his name lives on as strong as ever 2000 years later. And so many others who've, who've gone out seeking those things flame out after 10, 20, 30 years. So it's, um, yeah, really, really big reminder that our desire to be part of something great and lasting is really good. It's an appropriate desire that God has put in the heart of mm. every person, uh, but we just look for it in the wrong spots. Yeah. So let the veterans, let the 400-game superstars, the 1,000-goal veterans, maybe even the English team, if they're able to win Euros, if they get past Denmark and then Italy or Spain, um, let the superstar performances, the once-in-a-generation athletes, let them point you to the true superhuman Jesus. That's a good word to end on, Dogger. Thanks for that. And uh, to all our listeners, as always, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate that. Make sure you subscribe to Book of Sports and your favorite podcatcher. That way you'll be notified anytime we release new content that comes out on a week-to-week situation through the 2021 football seasons. And as always, if you've been blessed or if you have enjoyed and you by uh, this episode and you think that you know someone who also would enjoy uh, why don't you let them know about the book of sports and send them a link so they can join in it too as always it's been nathan and tim here until next time happy sporting